Well, we're continuing our series of the divine scrapbook of understanding the different people that were around Jesus in his time and the encounters they had and what picture of Jesus does that give us? Okay, and we, we what are we on, week five or something? Week four or five, I don't know where we're at. Five? Thank you, Mark. That's why you always have a wingman to help you count. <laughs> so we're on week five here, and today uh, is going to be part one of a two-part message. And next week we'll get to part two, but it's really to focus on the marginalized, the left out that we see in Scripture. And those are people that have been healed. Those are people that have been shunned because of decisions they've made, the sick, the poor, uh, women, children, all of these and more. And when we see Jesus interact with them, what we see is something unprecedented. We see something that was not done. And so what kind of picture does that paint for us of Jesus? And then how do we take what we see there and we apply it today? I mean, that's why we're going through this series, is to better understand our call here at Bridgewood by better understanding who Jesus is. Because understanding the picture that, that, the, that the Bible paints of Jesus will help us understand how we, we are good at mission, how we engage mission, how we engage prayer, how we engage community, how we engage discipleship. Because if we have a warped, picture of Jesus, then all of those things will look differently than they're supposed to. And so I just want to reiterate, that's why we're engaging this. And this is hard. And we're only, you know, this is just a few months. But this is something that we'll be dealing with for the rest of our lives. Because our experiences, they really do paint a picture, for good or for bad, of of who Jesus is to us. And a lot of our wounds paint that picture. Do they not? A lot of our brokenness. And so we engage Jesus out of brokenness. We engage church out of brokenness. Even those of us who've come into the relationship with Jesus, for some reason we still function out of brokenness. When we should be functioning out of healing and love and power and authority and grace. And you're going to hear that word a lot today, grace. And a word you're going to hear a lot today is shame. How many have carried shame in your life or are carrying shame? Yeah. And shame also prevents us from raising our hands. It does, doesn't it? We just had a a seminar um, by a a guy named Robert Walter. Who who went to the seminar on Grace for Shame? Uh, Those of you that went, have you been able to get it out of your mind? No, I... I started preparing, you know, I had these messages done months ago because we had, we had planned this out, and I feel like every week now I'm changing it because I can't look at the Word of God without seeing that shame is a huge part of the human condition that we deal with. It's not just sin, it's sin and what? Shame. And shame, it isolates us, and it makes us feel left out, and it makes us feel alone and without hope, and without joy, and any, any moment the light breaks in and, and joy begins to creep in and we think we have a shot, we think we have a chance, guess what shame does? It tries everything it can to snuff it out. And I felt in my life, most of my life, and I'm sick of living that way. Is anyone sick of living that way? And we'll get into more of that in just a minute, but I want to start off with this story. And... These will become innocent. These are innocent little stories, and then it gets heavy. But I believe that 
Everything that we see uh, in Scripture is God redeeming us from sin and shame. And shame is the big one that we, we, we take with us in our relationship with Jesus. I don't know why we do, but we do. We take it there. And we let it thrive. We let it have its way with us, but we can't anymore. I remember when I was, uh, I don't know, I think I was in second grade. And it's funny how early these patterns of shame start. And um, I'd already had a big event in my life that caused the shame pattern, but this particular one, it seems dumb, but it really, it really, really took hold of me, is, um, is kids can be really cruel, can't they? <laughs> and I remember being on the kickball field at recess. You know, recess was my best course, because one, you weren't graded, so I always passed, and it was fun. I didn't have to focus much. So we played kickball, and kickball was awesome, except for one thing is that you had to be picked. So, you know, you just got the line of shame there, and you're just hoping you're not the last guy. And I was, I could play. I knew I could play. But for some reason, I, you know, I grew up in a, a, a pastor's home, so I had that label on me, and I know that, that that singled me out. People picked on me just because of that. So I knew I could play the game at least to get picked in the middle of the pack, Right? But I got to a point where every day I was just praying I wasn't the last one picked. And I remember this was just the nail in the coffin. I, this was horrible. I'm standing there, and it's, uh, the, the teams are picked except for two people, myself and a guy with a broken leg and crutches, and he got picked before me. Right. His right leg was broken, and he was right-legged. He was right-handed, so he's kicking with his left leg. My right leg was fine. I can kick the ball. My coordination, hand-eye coordination was solid. But I remember that stuck with me. And I walked in the sense of feeling like a playground outcast. Right? Just like, that's the guy. That's the guy that uh, got picked last. And the guy with the broken leg, we don't even know his name. God doesn't even have a name in this story. And he got picked over me. So I remember it was just this spiraling feeling. And as I, as I went on through school and I went on through life, I carried that. And it seems dumb, but you carry that. And it wasn't something I did. It was something that, it was a perception I had of what was done to me. So when we look at shame, and, and Robert brought this up, and I really I thought it was brilliant, is sometimes forgiveness can't cover certain aspects of shame. Because there's shame that happens from actions that we do. And then there are actions done to us that produce shame that forgiveness doesn't necessarily cover. What about the sexually abused? And they're full of shame, but they didn't do anything wrong. So how does forgiveness help them in that situation? Does that make sense? It's a tough one. And I've walked in that kind of shame most of my life. And I would always pray, Lord, forgive me of my, my sin and my shame. Forgive me of my shame. Because what happens is when something's done to you and, and shame builds up, then that shame produces actions that build up more shame. So it started out something done to me, as it often does, by the way. And then that led into patterns of bad choices that only piled up that shame. And so I, I just got sick of it and I got tired of it. And, but it just kept piling up, piling up. And, and I'm starting to get free of it now. And it's never too late. So I just want to say, is before we move on in the scriptures and really get a good picture of this, 
I want you to prepare yourselves to understand that if you're sitting and you're living in shame right now, there is hope and there is freedom knocking on your door from it. So I want you to pay attention to that. And we don't want to openly admit that we're, we're living in shame because that's what shame prevents us from doing. And so if we are to really live out mission and discipleship and prayer and community in an authentic way that, that models a beautiful, wonderful picture of God that brings forgiveness and grace. Forgiveness from guilt and grace and love from shame. We need to get rid of this weight and this anchor. And it takes time. It's not something like, I want to get free of it today. I'm free. It takes time. And we'll, we'll see that in just a second. Well, as we look in Scripture, we see all these people that Jesus is drawn to and that are drawn to Jesus. We see, we see uh, lepers. We see um, uh, people that uh, need healing. We're either crippled, they're blind. We see people caught in adultery. We see uh, tax collectors and sinners. And where is Jesus? He's with them. And one of the things that every single person in these groups have in common is shame. Because if you look at the cultural context and the historical context of Scripture, and you're looking at the culture in which Jesus lived, shame was prominent because with the law, when you did something that was against the law, now you're guilty of sin, but also people make you aware of that. And they take that that dagger and dig it deeper and deeper and deeper and they shame you and shame you and shame you until you can't even be a part of the community. And so these people were outcasts and that's who Jesus went after. And see, the thing is, we run from shame, but Jesus runs towards it. He goes into it and he meets you there. And it's hard not to say that without crying because it is one of the greatest gifts we have in Christ Jesus is that he goes after you. He goes into it. He engages you. You know, we ask sometimes in, in, in the most desperate of times, and the most painful of times, God, where are you? Let me tell you, that's shame and fear that, that asks that question. Because he's right there in the midst going, I'm right here. And I want to meet you in this place. And I want to free you from this stuff. Work. And go. <laughs> Morgan, you said you had my back on this. Here are a few, here are a few passages of where we see this. We see, we see in John 8, 1 through 11, we see the woman caught in adultery. How many of us know this story? We've talked about it a few times over the past few weeks. A woman caught in adultery. And I'm going to kind of speed through these a little bit because I want to spend more time in one specific passage. But here we have something very interesting. We have a different kind of, each one has its own kind of shame. Um, tied to it. In this one, we see a woman who is caught in adultery, and we see the Pharisees testing Jesus. So they're trying to bring shame upon him and disprove that he's any kind of Messiah or prophet. So they take this woman, and according to the law, she has to be stoned to death. So Scripture tells us in John 8 that there's a crowd of people around them, and the Pharisees take this woman who's been caught in a sin, And who knows what's happened to her that's led her to make those decisions, but it's always something that doesn't justify it, but there is something. And so she feels ashamed enough, don't you think, that she got caught? 
and now she's brought in the public, and everyone knows her sin, so now her shame is exposed to everybody. And now they bring her before this, this rabbi, and they want to condemn her in front of him. And what does Jesus do? You tell me, what does he do? Does he condemn her? No. And he makes sure she knows that he's not going. He says, do they condemn you? After he does some cool stuff to make the Pharisees look dumb, <laughs> right? He who sinned first, cast the first stone, they all walk away, the oldest to the youngest. And he goes, who's here to condemn you? She goes, well, no one, sir. He goes, well, neither I condemn you. See, what shame makes you feel like is that you're condemned. Because Jesus says after, he says, sin no more. But he addresses the shame and the I don't condemn you. Because shame is a self-condemning spirit. It takes everything that you've learned and everything you've done and all of this stuff and, and it makes you feel condemned. That's why we isolate. That's like why we feel we can't have healthy relationships or we're not deserving of this or deserving of that because we've self-condemned. And Jesus says, look, I'm the light of the world and even I don't condemn you. Now that you're free of that, of that shame, don't sin anymore. That's pretty cool. Very significant. Moving on. We have John 9. We see the, the blind man, and this is the famous one where Jesus spits on the ground and makes you know, clay out of dirt and his saliva. It's kind of gross, <laughs> especially for germaphobes, right? I mean, there's a little, I'd rather just not see than have spit on my face, right? But he comes in, and this man, born blind, and before Jesus even encounters him, his disciples say to Jesus, who sinned that this happened to him, him or his parents? So, so let's take notice of that because in that culture, if, if something was wrong with you, they attributed it to the fact that you did something wrong. Kind of like karma, right? That idea that, well, they, if he's blind, there's a reason for it. So what did he do or what did his parents do? And Jesus goes, they didn't sin. But God's using this to show his glory. Okay? But they didn't sin. And guess what? He was an outcast. He was shamed because he was blind. And the understanding was he did something for that to happen. So he didn't have a, sh a chance not even from birth. And guess what? Jesus goes after him, he heals him. But remember, he doesn't just heal the physical. Because what you see after this is this guy running around saying that this guy is the Messiah and he's healed me. Now, if it was just about the physical, I don't think you would have this declaration that this guy is the Messiah, he's the real deal. There was something else that happened. Jesus went into his shame. He was free. He was healed. So when he's healed, he's also healed out of his shame because he no longer has to live in that shame. He can see. And even Jesus himself said, this man didn't even sin. And so some of us have had afflictions that have caused the shame that we have nothing to do with. And so we're sitting in that kind of shame. Some of us have done bad things or things that have, that have really not been great in the eyes of the Lord and have caused shame. Well, then we have this. We have the perception of shame. We have Jesus in Mark 2. 
of Levi, a tax collector. And he says to Levi, come follow me. And the scripture says, he went. Remember we talked about this. When Jesus calls, you give up everything. He said immediately, the guy left with Jesus. And Jesus went to his house, invited a bunch of other sinners living in shame, and he sat with them. There's a rabbi who has got this great reputation right now of doing wonderful things sitting at a table where other rabbis wouldn't even be caught dead. He says, the, the scribes of the Pharisees witnessed this. And we're like, and approached him and said, how can you do this? And this is where Jesus says, I don't, you know, I'm not here for the, the healthy, I'm here for the sick and the outcast. And so we see this picture, and another one I, I forgot to put up there that I should have, <laughs> but I have it on paper, so does that count? Um, is Paul's conversion in Acts chapter 9. And this is the one that gives me hope above all hope. Here we have a man that should, humanly speaking, be walking in his shame for the rest of his life. Because we see an encounter of Jesus on the roads of Damascus when Paul's on his way to persecute more Christians. And Jesus says, Saul, why have you persecuted me? And then there begins one of the greatest missionaries the world will ever know outside of Jesus. The greatest. The reason why we know of Jesus is we're considered Gentiles. The reason why we know is because Jesus moved in Paul going after the Gentiles. If we didn't have Paul saying yes to Jesus and stepping into the grace of Christ to get rid of his shame and stepping into forgiveness to get rid of his guilt, then you and I probably wouldn't know Jesus. Okay. And what is Paul known for? If you were to say in Scripture, those of you that are familiar with Paul, what is one word? What is it? Grace. Grace. Why do you think that is? And we're going to do a, a message on Paul in a few weeks. But why do you think that is? Man, because he knows the healing power of grace and how it redeems us from shame. Whew. It's huge. I can't wait to get into that one with you guys. So that'll be great. Um, how many are you familiar with? Click. <laughs> Who's that? Forrest Gump. How many have seen that movie? How many are too young to have seen that movie? All right. It is an interesting movie. Is it not? Those of you that have seen it? When I, uh, when I was in seminary at Fuller um, back in Pasadena uh, several years ago, one of the classes uh, that I took was Finding God in the Movies. That's what it was called. Do we have any movie fans here like to watch movies? I love watching movies because I hate reading. <laughs> so, and I'm a visual learner, so if I see it, it connects with me more. And so I loved it. When I saw this class, I'm like, man, i got to take this class. Because one, I think I get an A. And, and the other is, my homework is to watch movies. I've done that my whole life and never got credit. Now I'm getting credit. And so after that class, and it's just like how after I took this seminar with, with Robert about shame, you see shame everywhere in what you read. 
Um, and now finding God in movies. Every movie I watch since that class, I'm always looking for the movement of God. Whether or not the people are Christians or not, it doesn't matter because we're all made in the image of God. So that image is going to play out in some way, shape, or form. And so you can see it. And I'm telling you what, you'll never be able to watch this movie again after today the same way. This movie uh, is fascinating because it deals with shame. And it shows someone, we'll talk more about this next week, who would be considered childlike, would he not? I mean, even in his, in his middle age, it's always, Mama said this, Mama said that, and I believe her. There's this faith of a child kind of thing, which gets mistaken for stupidity, right? He's called stupid, and he often says, I'm not a smart man, because everyone's told him he's not. But he's the one guy that goes after every single person that has been an outcast, and that every single person who has lived in shame, and he goes after him. And you don't, I, I wanted to show a clip, but there's not really an appropriate clip in the movie. <laughs> so I just have to tell you about it. Um, but his relationship with a man named Lieutenant Dan, who lost his legs in Vietnam, and Forrest was part of his, his group of guys, and Forrest saves his life. He goes back for every single person. Does that sound familiar? He goes back for every single person until every single person is back to safety. And half the movie is about Dan, Lieutenant Dan, trying to get free from his shame. Everyone in his family had died in combat, and he did not. Forrest saved his life, and so now he's so ashamed. He's got no legs. He can't do what he used to do. And he's, he's blaming Forrest, but loves Forrest at the same time. He'll say, why didn't you leave me to die? He was doing drugs. He was doing alcohol. And he tried to bring Forrest down with him in that, but Forrest wouldn't do it because he has this faith in people that's, that love can conquer this. And he's got this relationship with this girl throughout the movie, Jenny. And, and Jenny says to him, you don't know what love is. And he says, I'm not a smart man, but I know what love is. And he shows it throughout the movie. And what we see is what Jesus does. He goes to where the shame is. And by the end of the movie, you see, and I think this is symbolic, you see Dan standing up on artificial legs, head held high, in a healthy relationship, and he's finally saying thank you. And then you see, you see at the very end, you see him with uh, Jenny, and if you haven't seen this movie, it's spoiler alert, so earmuffs if you don't want to hear this, but um, she's dying. And um, she says to him, why, why have you been so good to me? And he basically says this, because you're mine. And she finally says, I've always been yours. And I see that in that re our relationship with Jesus. Why, Lord, why? Because we ask that question, don't we, Lord? Why have you been so good to me? Because you're mine. If that doesn't begin to speak to your shame, because this woman had done terrible things. And it started with terrible things being done to her. So it was a shame that afflicted on her, and then she began to self-inflict herself, right? And the shame built. But by the end, she's free from it. And so I want us to look at um, this passage, because this speaks of it. 
Mark uh, 5, 25 through 34, and uh, if you'll just read along with me here, we see, we see Jesus, who's um, a man named Jairus, comes to him, and whose child is sick and, and is dying and, and wants Jesus to save him. And on his way there, he runs into a woman. And here's what we see in verse 25. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had, had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in a crowd and touched his cloak. Because she thought to herself, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. And immediately, her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. And we're going to take a look at that in a minute. Freed from her suffering. What does that mean? Think about that for a second. At once, Jesus realized the power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see these people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask who touched me? Careful, disciples. But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at, her feet, at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. I can't read this without crying. I can't. I can't. Most people, when they hear this, have no idea what's really happening here. You have no idea. And I'm going to let you in on a little secret. It's bad. It's really bad. If you turn to, I hope you have your Bibles, because this is not on the screen, so this is just testing you to make sure you have your Bible. You like how I shamed you there? That was awesome. Leviticus 15. Some are going, Leviticus, oh no. Leviticus 15, 25, verse 25. Now, here we see a woman who was bleeding for 12 years. Blood's a big deal in the Hebrew culture. It's a huge deal. Huge deal. Basically, what this woman did, did was, was break every kind of law about blood you could possibly imagine. And then she did it to someone who's being acknowledged as the savior of the world. Whoa! That's a big deal. And this is what we see in Leviticus 15, 25. When a woman has a discharge of blood for many days at a time other than her monthly period or as a discharge that continues beyond her period, she will be unclean as long as she has the discharge, just as in the days of her period. Any bed she lies on while her discharge continues will be unclean, as is her bed during her monthly period, and anything she sits on will be unclean as during her period. Whoever touches them will be unclean. He must wash his clothes and bathe in water, and he will be unclean till evening. When she is cleansed from her discharge, she must count off seven days, and after that she will be ceremonially clean. And then it says on the eighth day she's got to sacrifice and do all this stuff. Okay? That's crazy. And if, 
if you're to intentionally do something, you're done. And that's the kill signal right there. You're done. Now, this is talking about a short period of time. How long has she been bleeding? 12 years. That means everyone she's near, if she touches them, is unclean. She is an outcast. She is alone. She is full of shame. What's wrong with me? This can't stop. I don't know what's going on. And no one will engage me. If I do, I'm dead. And in desperation, she thinks to herself, if I just touch his clothes, I will be freed from my suffering. Just freed from the bleeding? No. I bet you she could probably handle that if it meant different things. But the fact is, 12 years of that means 12 years of loneliness, 12 years of being in shame, being rejected. And then she does something even more courageous. She fesses up. And she submits herself to Jesus. You can't get more shameful than this in that culture. Shame is on her knees before Jesus. And Jesus says, your faith has freed you from all suffering. It's freed you from everything. Not just the physical, but think about that. Twelve years. Twelve years. Twelve years of that kind of shame with no one to be by her side. And yet, there is one whose grace is sufficient. There's one whose love covers a multitude of sins, because covers shame. One of the things that Robert said I thought was just brilliant was that oftentimes as Christians... When we look at the cross, we live on one side of it. Because Jesus, it's, it's this embrace kind of look, right, when we see on the cross. And we're pretty good at living in forgiveness of guilt. Forgiveness from guilt of shame. Or, of, excuse me, of sin. Right? Because sin, when we sin, it causes guilt. And so we can say, we're forgiven. And we live in that, but then we don't know how to deal with the shame. And even pastors and leaders in the church today live and function out of shame and don't even know it. They just know something is wrong because they've only been on this side. But the other side is the grace and the love that speaks healing to the shame. And so when you get the full embrace, you get forgiveness from sin and you get grace for shame. So how, how, if we've lived in shame, do we begin the process of allowing ourselves to be enveloped in that embrace? Well, there's a lot of work to be done. <laughs> there is, and it takes courage to do it. But talking about it with someone that you trust is key. And I, don't, and, and I would encourage someone that you know knows the Lord and knows the healing that comes from the Lord. To find a safe place where you can confess, and I don't, I don't mean it in the, the sense that the church has used it for so long. Confess and you're forgiven. There we go. We're done. A few Hail Marys. You're good to go. That's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about an authentic conversation, 
of revisiting the places of deepest pain so that you can allow Jesus to visit there and speak life and speak healing so that you are freed from all suffering. You know, one of the, I've, said, I've talked about this ministry we have here before, but it's, we have Soul Care here, which is an inner healing ministry um, that Diana and others do, and, and, and Janet is a huge part of that. And it's something we believe in here because it's a safe place. And so I, I remember sharing this with you a few months ago, but I went in and, and it was, um, Diane called it out. She goes, I know you're here because it's kind of a courtesy. <laughs> and I was like, I've done my inner healing stuff. I'm good. Has anyone ever thought that? I'm good with my stuff. No one, just me? All right, thank you. <laughs> Don't make a guy feel alone up here. And so I, I went in and what was an act of courtesy became a first step to being free for me. And I, I get the shame stuff. I, I do. And I, I went back three, three more times, something like that, after and, and really watched the Lord do a work in my life. And things I, I, I had shame for that I almost forgot because they were so painful. But the shame, the shame was still there. And I remember... This, uh, sorry, this is kind of hard for me, but um, I, I, I've dealt with sexual abuse in my past, and, and I had it 16. Now, let me preface this. I was captain of the wrestling team. I could defend myself. Um, I, you know, had been in fights growing up, never lost. I was like, yeah, yeah, I can take care of myself. But in this situation, I was outnumbered and became victim to something, and that's, that, that sat with me for years. Because I said, I felt so ashamed because I couldn't do anything. But I should have, right? Come on, I'm, I'm prepared for this, but I couldn't. And I lived in the shame for so long, for so long. And it robbed me. It robbed me of the freedom of the grace and love. I didn't understand grace and I didn't understand love until I began to revisit those areas and begin to confess to the Lord, Lord, this is eating me alive. This is eating me alive. And I remember... I, I, would, I would approach ministry is to appease him, to go, Lord, I want to do whatever I can to get rid of this, so I'll just do good stuff. But it wasn't until, it wasn't until I visited this that I was able to really see it. Click, click, please. There we go. It's Luke 23. We see the man on the cross next to Jesus, and he defends Jesus from the other guy. And all he says, he, he knows that whether... How he got there is irrelevant. The fact is this man lived with sin and shame. Some deserved, some not. But he simply says this, Jesus, remember me. When you come into the, your kingdom, will you remember me? And I remember growing up going, Lord, just remember me. Because I'm never going to get it as close as I want because of this. And look what he says. Truly, I tell you the tr- truth. Today, you will be with me. So, no matter where you are right now, that holds true for you. I keep pointing that way. It's up there, too. But that holds true for you. We can't settle for a remember me. Because Jesus doesn't just remember you. You're known. You're known. And he says this, you are mine. And it's, we got to get to a point where we can say, that's right, I've always been yours. I've always been yours. For truly, I tell you today, says the Lord, you will be with me in paradise. 
That's the promise we have. And when we're with him, even on this earth, we're in paradise. We're free. So as we close, um, as we close, I just want to remind you that we'll have soul care signups in the lobby, and I highly suggest it. It's a safe place. We have prayer teams that'll be up here. Maybe it's just a conversation to admit you have shame, and that's it for now. That's a good step. But one that has been called in the position of authority here at Bridgewood Community Church, it is my heart's desire, because I believe it's God's desire, that we all get free of this. We all get free of this. Because if we don't, we're sunk. And we know that feeling. God has called us to community, not isolation. He's called us to his heart, not to isolation. And shame isolates, and it makes us feel like we've lost, and we condemn ourselves. But he says, the hope is, he says, who's here to condemn you? Neither I condemn you. Let's pray. Lord, I just, I am amazed by your grace and your mercy. And this stuff I know doesn't get fixed overnight, but it, we want to, you painted us a, a pretty good picture, Lord, that uh, you are a God that wants to free us from shame and sin. So uh, we ask that you give us the courage to step into that. That's all I can say, Lord. Lead us and give us the courage to step into it. Reveal someone to us that we can talk to and begin the process of healing and freedom. So I pray as we... Uh, the offering plate comes by. I, I do thank you, Lord, for the, the movement of your spirit within this church family and, and ask that you would continue to move in us as we give. And um, just thank you, just proof that you are in the midst. So, Lord, we just ask that you would bless us that in this remaining time of worship, that we would worship you in spirit and truth, we'd have fun doing it, and that we would claim the freedom, the freedom from not just guilt and shame, but or from sin, but, uh, Lord, freedom from shame by your grace and your mercy. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.